Welcome to Beth Takun and this series called Spiritual Seasons. This week we are in Parsha Tetzave, Exodus 28 through the first 10 verses of chapter 30. So it's a short portion. We will also discuss the holiday of Purim today. So our mandate here with this Spiritual Seasons series is to explore the weekly Torah portions in the light of the pattern of growth God has designed for us within the calendar. Each year, we travel through a year of development according to a pattern, a year of salvation, and each Torah portion reflects a point in that annual curriculum. Since beginning our study in the eighth month, our main topic has been how it is that we grow up to be the mature bride in this second half of the year, this second half of the cycle. The mature bride is more independent and free-thinking than the young girl who is rescued from Egypt in the spring. God desires a bride who has the independence to genuinely choose him. This means that he has to hide a bit during this section of the year when we are reaching maturity, because with God's increasing hiddenness, our free will grows. If he is very obvious to us, if his light is dazzling us, We simply won't make choices contrary to his will. So our free will is limited when he is obvious. It's only when he hides himself that we can really step up to walk in faith. This idea of God's hiddenness and our increased free will is seen on this side of the calendar in the two holidays of Hanukkah and Purim. God chose to only give us holidays in the first seven months of the calendar, leaving these five cold winter months without a holiday. So the bride has stepped up to bring forth two special Moedim out of love for the groom, Hanukkah and Purim. These are not commanded in the Torah, but they are ways that the bride uses her free will to express her love for God. She steps up to set these special days and pledges to keep them. And through them, she says, I know this isn't commanded, but I want to bring a special gift to my creator, my rescuer, my groom. And we see there at the end of the book of Esther how many words are given to the idea that this is something that we want to keep going throughout the generations. Well, we'll have more to say about Purim in particular in the second half of this teaching, since Purim is coming up for us next Monday night. Let's turn now, though, to portion Tetzave. Tetzave begins with the commandment to have the children of Israel bring olive oil for the menorah. The bulk of the portion is taken up with descriptions of the priest's special clothing followed by the detailed description of how the priests are to be consecrated for service. Finally, the portion ends with the description of the golden altar of incense. So we have these instructions regarding the priest's clothing and their consecration sandwiched between the oil for the menorah at the beginning and the altar of incense at the end, right? Oil priestly clothing and consecration, and then the golden altar of incense. So these two 
the menorah and the golden altar have a kind of connection to each other in the text. Listen to how the two are connected in Exodus 30, verses 7 to 8, part of the description of the altar of incense. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps. Right? Catch that. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it, the incense. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. In other words, when the menorah is being tended, both in the evening when it's being lit and in the morning when it is trimmed, incense is to be burned. The two go together. I can't say that I can explain this connection, but I'll give a thought here. The menorah represents the light of truth that we mostly get from reading God's word. And so we can look at that menorah as God's word shining there. And the altar of incense represents prayer. Reading God's word, the light of the menorah, and prayer, the incense, go hand in hand. And we do well to engage in both together, both in the morning and evening. And further, these activities of Torah study and prayer are central to the role of the priests. We can say that these two activities are the primary good works with which the priests clothe themselves, right? With prayer and with Torah study. That's what a priest is doing so much of. That's their, their action of clothing. So, these two are referenced before and after the description of the priestly clothing. There are many directions we could go in exploring the clothing of the priesthood. The uniform for regular priests consists of four pieces of special clothing, and the high priests consists of eight. Four for the regular priests, eight for the high priest. I want to save plenty of time to discuss Purim today, though, so I'll keep the focus at a general level and sprinkle in the application to Yeshua along the way. As we're reading these details of the priestly garments, we might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? This section is about the priesthood. I mean, I'm not a priest, right? So one point I'd like to make today is the idea that all of these details of the tabernacle and the priests apply to us on some level, because actually we are priests. So in listening to some rabbis this week, More than one mentioned the idea that each of us has a facet of the priesthood within us, or even an aspect of Moses, one or two of them were saying, within us. And so there is the sense that if we are all a priesthood, then these details of clothing and consecration do have an application to us. That's the direction I'd like to go today, because it's not just the rabbis saying that we have a spark of Moses in us. The idea of The priesthood of believers is supported by the apostolic scriptures in multiple ways, what we sometimes call the New Testament, supported by the apostolic scriptures. The most important of these is the idea that Yeshua is our high priest in the heavenly tabernacle, and further, that he lives in us. If we have the high priest living in us, 
then we need to be putting on the clothing of the high priest. And we need to be learning from the description there of that clothing. So before we go further, let's strengthen this idea that we all are to reflect the priesthood. The idea begins when God is proposing to Israel at Mount Sinai. He says to Israel there, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Keep in mind that God is speaking to a mixed multitude gathered around Mount Sinai, both Jews and the Gentiles who are being grafted into them as they're coming out of Egypt. Our generations now are the heirs to this promise of priesthood. Priesthood for both the Jew and the Gentiles grafted into Israel. We who are Gentiles need to keep in mind, however, that though Israel is a nation of priests, God ordained that only the descendants of Aaron are to perform the priestly functions at the temple. So this is not something available to us or even to the rest of Israel. Only the descendants, the rest of the genetic descendants of Jacob as Israel. It's not available to them either. Only the descendants of Aaron. So to reinforce the idea of the priesthood of believers, let me read a couple of passages from the apostolic scriptures, both of which are addressed to the churches of Asia, which were mixed, Jew and Gentile, right? All through Paul's journeys through that area of Turkey, he keeps trying to go to the Jews, and then often he ends up going to the Gentiles, and there's this great mixture happening within those churches in Turkey, of those churches of Asia, of Jew and Gentile. So 1 Peter 2, and uh, Peter is also talking to the churches of Asia here. And 1 Peter 2, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Right? He says, you are a royal priesthood when addressing the churches of Asia. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelation chapter 1, and John is also addressing the churches of Asia, says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews further states that Yeshua is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, If we are in him and he in us, Yeshua, then we who are Gentiles may assume that we too are of the Melchizedekian order of the priesthood. Again, this does not mean that we claim the ability to do anything at a future earthly temple. Yeshua ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. So if we are called a royal priesthood, What are we learning here in this Torah portion that we can apply to ourselves? Let's talk about clothing for a minute. Grant has often explained that clothing both conceals and reveals. It covers us up 
so it conceals. But at the same time, it is made to fit our bodies underneath. It's a second skin. So it reveals what's underneath. But it's a second skin that reveals more than our shape. It also reveals something of the personality that is even deeper inside. We are blessed enough to live in a time when clothing is cheap and plentiful. We get to choose our clothes from thousands of choices, and our choices reveal something of our personality, our inner self. Clothing both hides and reveals. We read in this portion that the priestly garments are made for glory and beauty. Glory and beauty. What does that mean? And what does that mean that we're like on the inside if we are priests as well? If the outside is revealing the inside, then there's a kind of glory and beauty inside us that is reflected in the priestly clothing and our own choices of clothing. Our clothing needs to reflect the pure, holy, beautiful spirit within us. It should be modest and tidy and even to an extent reflective of a kind of nobility, a royalty. We're called a royal priesthood. Let me say to the younger people, and I was one of you once, I know it's popular to look a bit disheveled these days, but can I suggest that you should always be asking yourself if your clothing is reflecting your royalty and priesthood. If you're mowing the lawn, fine, then dress, dress for mowing the lawn, but respect yourself enough to generally present yourself with an outward dignity that reflects your inner dignity. The priest's clothing reflects an inner glory and beauty. And this applies especially to what we wear on the Sabbath. It is a Jewish tradition to wear better clothes on Shabbat to help sanctify the day. And we used to have this awareness in America more than we do now, dressing in your Sunday best As I was growing up, I saw the church go through a clothing transition uh, that I think was partly designed to help welcome in those who were unchurched. The motives may have been good, but we lost something precious when we began going to church in regular, everyday clothes. So this is one practical application to the Torah portion. I want to make one further connection here. If we are taking lessons about being priests from the Bible and and this portion, then we need to look at who God is choosing for these duties and learn from their examples. Who were these people? We need to draw from the character of God's appointed priests because in the end, and this is important, our actions in this life are our most important clothing. Part of the covering we will carry with us into the next world, right? We can't take these clothes, these physical clothes, into the next life, but we take our our good deeds and our actions. So in this portion, God is specifically choosing Aaron to be the priestly family. So what can we see in Aaron? What can we see in his good deeds and in his life that um, we should strive to emulate, to clothe ourselves with? So what most strikes me about Aaron is that he humbly accepts the spiritual authority of his younger brother. 
he did not question the fact that though he was the older brother, Moses was God's choice to deliver and lead the people, not him. Though we see Aaron question Moses at one point in one specific matter, we don't see Aaron ever trying to take any of Moses' authority. Even though God had put Aaron very near to Moses and the leadership of Israel, it was Aaron who started the first three plagues in Israel. It was Aaron who was gifted with speech, while Moses was not. In some ways, Aaron may have looked like the better leader, even maybe to himself he might have looked like the better leader. But Aaron not only doesn't question God's choice, he's humble enough to be a constant helper to his younger brother. He serves Moses. He often speaks for Moses. He leads in Moses' absence, though he stumbles in that. At one point at the Battle of Amalek, Aaron faithfully lifts Moses' arms along with her. He is there to serve his younger brother, and he is faithful in that. He's always playing second fiddle to Moses, and he's okay with that because he recognizes that God made him a second fiddler. (laughs) Aaron knows how to submit to spiritual authority. There's a humility there and a simple acceptance of God's will for him and the deep belief that what God has given to him personally is enough. I think this ability of Aaron to accept Moses as his leader, his older brother as his leader, and to be a constant support to him opened the door for God to, in one important area, take Aaron from the second chair and put him in the first chair, and that is the priesthood. Moses is not made high priest. Aaron is given this great honor. So in that area, he gets to sit in the first chair. We do well to not be comparing ourselves to others and to be happy for others who have gifts that we don't. We do well to accept the spiritual authority God has given us. We do well to trust that what God gave us is what is perfect for us in this moment. We should try to put on these important aspects of Aaron's clothing. This is the clothing that lasts. Aaron is known in Jewish tradition as a peacemaker. All of Israel mourned for him when he died. And this is not said of Moses, the prophet. The role of the prophet is to bring the word of the Lord to the people, not to make friends. Aaron, on the other hand, was gifted with diplomacy, and that's a special skill. And the people loved him. Yeshua says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We should also strive to bring peace between people around us. In doing that, we are emulating Aaron, the one God chose to be the first earthly high priest and the father of the priestly line. Well, let's turn now to the holiday of Purim. For the sake of time, I'm going to assume that you are all familiar with the story of Esther. And if you're not, you can give it a quick read now. It's not very long. It's nine chapters. These comments will make much more sense if you are familiar with the story. There are actually some strong connections between Parsha Tetzaveh, this week's portion, and the holiday of Purim. And Purim often falls out during this portion And one of those connections is the idea of clothing. 
many rabbis point out that clothing is mentioned many times in the Purim story. And I think that's because clothing is a good metaphor for the holiday in general. As we mentioned earlier, clothing both hides and reveals. It's a kind of, it's kind of paradoxical in that way. And the essence of Purim is the hiddenness that reveals. So let me say that again. The essence of Purim is the hiddenness that reveals and the light coming out of the darkness. So let's do a little work now to place Purim in the flow of the calendar. Remember that we are in a time of the year when mankind's free will is coming to its highest point, and this is related to God's hiddenness. As we have said, the more hidden God is, the more free will we have. According to the sages, because Israel had so much free will at the time of Purim, but they had little free will when God was so obvious at Mount Sinai, it is at Purim that they truly made the decision to be covenanted to him. Purim was their greatest moment to be faithful when God was hidden and when God was not a blazing fire on the mountain or leading them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and fire. We see God's hiddenness in the Purim story in a number of ways. The mask is a symbol of Purim partly for this reason. We know that God's name does not appear in the Megillah of the Megillah of Esther, though Grant has shown us several times how God's name is, in fact, hidden in the text in a few places. You kind of have to read backwards and this and that. It's hidden there. Not only is God's name not openly written in Esther, but the book also lacks any explicit miracles or any divine revelation. On the surface, it's just a story of a girl raised by her cousin who becomes queen and helps to save her people. It's a story where chance seems to play a big role. And this is alluded to in the name Purim, which means lots. In the story, Haman casts lots, pur, they're called, in ancient Persian, as he crafts his scheme. Some say he casts lots to find the most auspicious day to carry out his plan against the Jews, the luckiest day. Well, late winter is a time of testing so that through our dogged faithfulness, God can bring a great light out of us. And that light is our true selves. We are coming to a place of revealing our true inner nature, that spark of God within us. Through the darkness of God's hiddenness and the testing he brings, we are revealed, okay, the hiddenness that brings, you know, revelation. Purim is all about this hiddenness and this testing and this, what are you going to do under that testing? How, how, what are you, you going to show is really going on inside of you? The testing at this time that God brings about may take the form that it does here in the Purim story, the idea that by chance, by coincidence, We have suffered a great setback. So hear this. Maybe you're someone who is thinking right now, oh, I was so unlucky and this thing happened to me. So hear this. God is challenging us to look at every situation he designs for us, especially situations that look like they simply developed by chance 
or bad luck and say, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in coincidence. Nothing happens that is not by God's design for good reasons. God wants us to look at that dilemma in front of us and say, God, you can't fool me. I can see you behind this problem. Help me now to walk through this faithfully. This is when the bride gets to show how faithful she is. You know, you tell God, I want to be a faithful bride, so help me to walk through this. Israel passed the test in the great darkness at Purim, and as they did, a great light shone from them. Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva Tatz points out that if you're standing in bright light, you can't see the little light you're shining, right? There's too much other light. That's, you, you can't see your own light. You need darkness in order to see the light. He points out that the Zohar says you can only bring light out of darkness. We say that God is the creator of darkness. He creates it because darkness is necessary for drawing a light out of us that can be seen. And this great shining of Israel's light in the darkness is another aspect of maturity at this time of year. One element of maturity is that the light goes out from you. And sometimes this means actual evangelism. Purim was one of the most evangelistic moments in Israel's history. In Esther 8, near the end of Esther, it says, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And listen to this. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So this was a great moment where there were many who came in and became Jews because of this great light that shined. Notice that Israel didn't go door knocking with evangelistic tracts here. And I'm not disparaging that practice, by the way. My, my own father became a believer partly because someone left a tract on a bus seat. And my dad used to go door to door with tracts when, when I was younger. Uh, there's a time and place for that kind of direct evangelism. What happens in this story, though, is different. It's, it's more indirect. God puts Israel in the vice and squeezes. Their physical lives are threatened. Rabbi Trugman says that when you press physicality, like olives in an olive press, what comes out is spirituality, right? We use that oil to make light. <laughs> and isn't, isn't that the truth? And that spirituality isn't always light, by the way, that comes out when you're pressed. When I'm squeezed, sometimes my true heart comes out and I don't like what I see. But in any event, whatever's inside is going to come outside when you squeeze. <laughs> in the case of Purim, though, God had been refining Israel in exile. And what came out of the people was faith in their God and faithfulness to their covenant with him. This faithfulness is what had been marinating and stirring in them. Love of God is what had been filling their hearts and minds. And when they were pressed, the light of faithfulness and love for God is what came out. And it was a great light indeed. So this light shines from God's people in the darkness of chance and the darkness of Haman's plot. 
And this light is connected to the next month, Nisan. Remember that one of the characteristics of the end of the cycle is that it carries a hint of the beginning of the next cycle with it. The sages say the end is enwedged in the beginning. It's circular. And in a circle, the end is connected to the beginning. God sees the faithfulness of his bride in the 12th month. And in a way, he responds in the next month, the first month, the month of Passover, by shining a new light of his own on us. And by that new and greater light, we see that there is more work to be done. There are parts of us that are still enslaved, and we cry out to him by the illumination of that new light. And this is in the, in the beginning of spring, right? When the very air outside is showing us a new light. So it is that the, the light that shines from us at the end helps to bring forth the responding light that shines on us at the next beginning, right? God sees our faithfulness and he says, okay, I'm going to shine a new light. You're going to see deeper in and we're going to go another step higher. Haman the Agagite, Haman the Amalekite is what the, the topic that I want to focus on next here. This is the, the enemy here. And so with the time remaining, let's drill down a bit on who Haman was. And we'll also make an application here for today that Rabbi Tatz emphasizes when he talks about Purim. In the book of Esther, that arch enemy of the Jews, his full name is Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And so what can we learn from this name? First of all, one way to read this string of names is Magnificent Son of the Double Flame. Magnificent Son of the Double Flame. In other words, Haman's name alludes to a bright light. And what have we just been talking about? (laughs) It's coming out of Israel at this time. In the end... Haman is hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. It's his own, he he paid his own money to build a 50 meter high gallows. 50 meters is not small, right? That's like 150 feet. Uh, Haman wanted everyone to see Mordecai hanging there, and instead, it's Haman who is hung there. The paradoxes and the ironies in the story are all over the place. In the end, Haman's magnificent light was snuffed out because he tried to snuff out the Jews and it was instead the light of the Jews that shone out like fire throughout the known world at the time. But I want to focus on another aspect of this name. Haman is an Agagite. The only place in scripture we find the name Agag is in 1 Samuel 15, which is the Haftarah for this week's Torah portion, Tetzave. It is the story of the downfall of King Saul. King Saul is ordered to attack and utterly wipe out Amalek, destroying all the people and even the livestock. But Saul spares the Amalekite king, King Agag, along with the best of the livestock. And for this, you know, he killed all the rest of them. He just left the one king, Agag, alive and the livestock. But for this... The kingship is removed from Saul. It was very important to God that Amalek be entirely eradicated, even the livestock. 
The prophet Samuel ends up killing Agag, and the text is, is emphatic. It says, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Amalek exists to be warred against, right, to be battled against and annihilated, which is what happens in Esther. Not only is Haman hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai, but his ten sons are also killed and eventually hung on that same gallows. Is the Bible just being gruesome for no reason in describing these things? No, if the Bible is being gruesome, it is to make the point that no mercy was shown here. Agag, Haman, and his ten sons represent something so dangerous in the world that they can be shown no mercy whatsoever. King Saul lost the kingdom for showing a shred of mercy to Amalek. So what does Amalek represent? We didn't get the chance to discuss this back in Parsha Bashalak, which is when they're mentioned, but the topic of Amalek fits well here in connection to Purim, right? Haman is an Amalekite, apparently, a descendant of the king of Amalek. In Exodus 17, Israel has just come out of Egypt, right? So back in Bashalak, they sing the song of the sea and they march into the deep wilderness. They quickly start to suffer some doubts because their situation looks quite bleak, quite dark. They have no water. God provides water and there's light in the darkness. They have no food. God provides quail and manna and there's light in the darkness. Once again, though, when they camp at Rephidim, they have no water, and the people ask, is the Lord among us or not? And the very next verse says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Israel summoned Amalek's attack, and how did they do that? They doubted whether God was among them or not. Amalek is doubt. The sages point out that the gematria of Amalek, you know, the, the numerical value of Amalek, that word, is the same as the gematria of Sophek, which means doubt. Israel doubted whether God was among them or not, and Amalek attacked. In Deuteronomy 25, there's a connection made between Amalek and the idea of chance. So a doubt and chance are brothers. When we doubt God, and reject God, we find ourselves in a universe run by chance and luck, and we end up bowing down at that altar. How many people don't show a belief in God, but they have a lucky jersey or trust to the death in some superstition? Right? We, we want to believe that something is running the universe, and when we think that it's not God, then we ascribe that to chance. How many don't believe in God, but believe in luck and even believe that they can influence their own luck? The connection in Deuteronomy 15 is this. It says that when Israel was coming out of Egypt, Amalek happened upon you and didn't fear the Lord. The phrase happened upon you is karkabaderek. And we're told that the word translated happened upon you Karka means coincidence. It also means cold and sensual impurity. And these are all related meanings. But the idea that Amalek just happened to stumble upon Israel in the wilderness 
and decided to attack, well, that's one way you can read that sentence there in the Bible. And, and it's God's word that's saying that, right? But here's the thing. God hides behind chance. <laughs> um, we're not to take the bait. We are not to believe that Amalek just happened upon Israel. God often puts on that clothing of chance and luck. And one way God hides himself is under the cloak of chance, like in the Purim story. In the wilderness, God allowed Amalek to trip over Israel at just the moment Israel doubted him. And that's not coincidence. But it could look that way. And so believers say, no, it's all God. It might not seem illogical to the world to decide that God is in control even when it seems that our luck is very bad. I mean, that might seem illogical. Christians will say, oh, it's God, it's God. And some non-believer will look at that and say, you're crazy. You know, you have bad luck. The world doesn't understand the life of faith. Faith is founded on logic and evidence. That's the foundation of faith, right? The beginning of our faith is evidence, but it goes beyond logic and evidence. Faith transcends logic. We follow God on a path that often looks illogical to the world. We look at our circumstances in a way that often seems crazy to the world. Faith and doubt are enemies at odds with each other, right? We've got faith on one side. We have doubt on the other side. Peter has faith to walk on the water, but then he starts to sink. And Yeshua says, you of little faith, why did you doubt, right? You of little faith faith, why did you doubt? The interesting thing about both faith and doubt is that neither is really based in the head, in the intellect, in the understanding and logic. They both have connections to evidence and logic, but in the end, evidence and logic can only take you so far. With faith, eventually there's always that leap of faith because we can't see God tangibly, at least not right now, We can't see the beginning of creation, how it all started. We can't see what's going to happen in the future if we persist in obedience when the situation looks grim. Doubt, too, is not especially an intellectual animal. The sages say Amalek lives in the neck. Amalek sounds like the commandment to sever the neck of the turtle dove, which is called Malika, right? Amalek, Malika sever the neck. The neck is below the head, the seat of the intellect, and the neck is above the heart, the seat of the emotions. What the sages are saying is that while doubt is influenced by both our intellect and our emotions, it's not entirely controlled by either. It's rather elusive. In the words of Rabbi Tatz, when the question of God comes up, Doubt says, maybe yes, maybe no. In the end, it doesn't matter. There's a kind of coldness there. There's an emotional numbness, an apathy. And there's a resistance to real intellectual inspection there too, right? Doubt resists being inspected by the mind. The mind wants to think about the idea of God But along comes doubt and sort of derails everything, putting an end to the thought process. Maybe yes, maybe no. In the end, it doesn't matter. And you move on 
to the next thing in your day, and your doubt goes unexamined, and the belief crisis is averted once again. It's really an insidious enemy, and it must be crushed absolutely. It's poison. So let's finish with one important way that we can apply Amalek to our society today, an application that Rabbi Tatz frequently mentions. Rabbi Tatz is a surgeon. He's from South Africa, as well as a rabbi, a surgeon and a rabbi. So he has spent a lot of time in the realm of science and scientists, and it weighs heavily on his heart that our world is so duped by the false religion of the evolutionists. Rabbi Tatz says that Amalek is the space between the world and belief in the Torah. Let me say that again. Amalek is the space between the world and belief in the Torah. And that doubt, that space that separates belief in the Torah is often built upon the theory of evolution, which is offered as the alternative to a creator. In the end, the evolutionists have put their faith in the God of chance. They say, given enough time, an infinity of monkeys pounding away at an infinity of typewriters will eventually randomly produce the works of Shakespeare. Really. (laughs) In other words, given enough time and enough chances, life is bound to emerge. This is the God of chance put in the place of the real God, right? Remember, we always want to feel like something is in control. Doubting God is possible here because an alternative is offered, and that alternative is called chance. It was bound to happen someday. This is not science, though it has the veneer of science. In reality, the theory of evolution is a belief that has become the foundation of a humanist religion and a humanist morality that allow people to be their own gods and live as they want. I want to go into some detail here because evolution is as alive in our society as it has ever been, and it's corrosive. And we need to be equipped to address it, especially if we have children. So let me say it again. In our day, doubting God often rests on the foundation of evolution. It's one of the greatest lies ever perpetrated upon humanity. On the one hand, we don't want to take up too much mental real estate on this foolishness, but on the other hand, we need to be informed, and we need to know how to read many of the science headlines and and National Geographic programs and such. The idea is just everywhere, and they just assume it now. We, We don't avoid learning about evolution because we need to understand it in order to refute it. So let me just mention, by the way, that I do have a degree in biology. By now, I have forgotten much of what I learned back when I was in college. But when I was studying for that degree, I was quite interested in this topic of evolution. So I did some extra studying about it at that time. We need to be clear what we mean by the word evolution, because the writers of the biology textbooks use this word in a very tricky way to indoctrinate students into secular humanism. The word evolution can refer to two very different ideas, and their trick is to blur the lines between the two. These two ideas are called microevolution and macroevolution. There's one main difference between them. Microevolution is simply the sifting of genes that are already present, the limiting of genes to get a desired look or ability or characteristic. 
we start with a wolf, and if we get rid of the genes for large size, we end up with a small wolf, and we're on the way to making dogs. Based on how we continue sifting the genes, we can get a great diversity of dogs. But the key question is always: Have any new genes been created? In this case, the answer is no. So this is microevolution. Microevolution is just limiting the choices for what God created in the DNA. Right? So limiting the choices, we are limiting the choices for what the descendants can look like. No one questions that microevolution is a real process. It is. Macroevolution is different. It's sometimes called amoeba to man evolution, right?、And、you can think back to those pictures of that gelatinous amoeba, changes to something fish-like, changes to something mammal-like, and then a monkey. And we we all know that picture, right? We've seen it many times. That is macroevolution, and the key to macroevolution is that it requires the development over time of millions upon millions upon millions of new genes. There's no good evidence for macroevolution. In place of real support for this idea, they hire artists to imagine what this slow change would look like over time, and they put these imaginative illustrations in the textbooks as if they actually have evidence behind them. But it's all a fiction. And so here's the trick that the textbooks do: they first convincingly prove microevolution with pictures of a wolf branching into all kinds of dogs. And based on that proving of microevolution, they just go right into the illustrations of amoeba to man evolution, which almost with almost no attempt to prove it, they trot out microevolution and say, evolution has been absolutely proven scientifically, and microevolution certainly has been proven. Of course, you can filter the gene pool and get a different looking result. Mankind has been doing that since the beginning, but based on that discussion, the textbook writers just assume that macroevolution is also proven. But macroevolution requires the creation of billions of new genes, and the problem for modern scientists is that they simply can't explain with any kind of plausibility what guided the creation of the new genes. So the secular educators are very savvy, indeed, and we need to be aware of their tactics because evolution is the root of Amalek in our world today. That gap between that gap that separates us from, or many in our society, from belief in the Torah and belief in God. We need to know how to cut Amalek down today. So when someone who believes in macroevolution is talking with me about origins and they try to throw in my face, that's religion. What you believe, this is science. I politely point out to them that not only is their belief in macroevolution a faith-based religion, but the evidence supporting that faith is much weaker than the evidence supporting my faith in God. Don't let them get away with labeling their belief as science and yours as faith. It takes a greater faith to believe that all of this just happened randomly, like an infinity of monkeys smashing 
typewriter keys. Believers in macroevolution are not operating primarily in the world of the intellect. They're operating in the world of Amalek, and Amalek resists deep intellectual examination. If there are a few evolutionists who are being more intellectually honest, they will eventually come to a belief in a creator. The others will continue to plod along in spiritual darkness. But again, as ridiculous as it is, and as damaging as it is to our society, in that it offers a widely accepted alternative to a creator, we must extend some grace to these who are so lost in that pitiful darkness. It's not a kind world that they live in. It's a world where only the most fit survive. It's a world of confused morality and a deep struggle to find meaning in life. But for the grace of God, we would be right down there in that pit with them. Approach them with love, knowing that deep within their souls, in a place they are too afraid to explore, they sense the lie. And because they sense the lie, there's a lurking unease that haunts them in their quiet moments. They are not at rest. And when we are not at rest, we are constantly exhausted. So let your heart go out to them, even as you refuse to accept their worldview. And we don't waste too much time in these conversations. In tying this up today, one point I'd like to emphasize is that you can only go so far in fighting doubt with logical arguments. If you find doubt cropping up within you, don't reason with it. Instead, you do what God says to do with Amalek. You simply annihilate it. You allow it no quarter. You give it no place whatsoever. If doubt crops up, you don't try to think through it. You just kill it. That's not to say that we don't have a great many logical reasons to believe in God. We do. Our faith is evidence-based. What I'm saying is that when you're walking with God and the way seems to grow dark and the enemies of truth seem to be prospering and one evil decree after the next seems to be falling against you and the thought comes into your mind, is God with us or not? Do not allow that thought to live. You have the choice to dwell on the thought or not. Kill it. Press on in faith, knowing that God is in the process of bringing light out of darkness. Just keep walking. Perm is about seeing through chance, seeing through the cloud, seeing through the extra clothing that God is putting on as he maybe brings some trial into our lives and some squeezing. In the end, we will witness the flipping of Purim when he draws the light out of the darkness. We will witness that. Squeeze the physical, and what comes pouring out eventually is the spiritual. And when that light emerges, the result is joy. We experience joy, the great joy of Purim. But in order to get there, we have to be merciless to defeat Amalek, to defeat doubt, to defeat Haman. We press in in faith. Lastly here, let's make the point that Yeshua is the ultimate example of hiddenness that reveals he was born in humble circumstances and placed in a feeding trough. He spoke in parables. When possible, he avoided putting himself forward. In the end, he allowed himself to be stripped and beaten and hung on a cross. And the light that came from that humble and quiet life changed the world forever. Well, we'll end there today. Thank you for listening.
May God make us a people who are mighty to defeat Amalek in our lives. May he make us people whose actions reflect our priestly nature. May he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.